This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Stories Done, Writing on the 60s and Its Discontents, our guest today, Michael Gilmore, examines the lies of that era's most important cultural icons, never shying away from the ugly influences that brought many of them to their knees. Gilmore is a journalist and music aficionado who has written for Rolling Stone magazine since the 1970s. His first book, Shot in the Heart, is a National Book Critics Circle and L.A. Times Book Prize-winning memoir about his older brother, Gary, the first man to be executed in Utah after pleading guilty to murder. Michael Gilmore, welcome to Weekly Signals. Uh, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, how are you doing today? You're just up the road in the uh, Pasadena area, is it? Uh, I'm over. I'm in Woodland Hills, huh? out in the Los Angeles Valley. Uh-huh. Is, is that where you live in Woodland Hills? I'm, yes. I, I came from the valley myself, North Hollywood and Sepulveda. And p- people discount us a lot out there in the valley, but I think it's a, it's a fun, it's a great place. There's a lot of activity there that is overlooked. So true. Yeah. So before we get going on this, uh, people always think that uh, the 60s is talked about too much these days. And, and first of all, it's a wonderful book on the 60s. I really appreciate this. But I'm going to issue a little 60s disclaimer here and read something from your forward. And then I'd just like you to comment in, on it a little bit, too. I don't live in the sure. past. I don't live in the past. This is you speaking. Nor do I long to see it reenacted. I want to know what is possible tomorrow, what can be justly broken, and what might be made anew. Well, what why did you say that in your forward? Well, it, there there is a tendency uh, among uh, among people to either claim a, a decade like, like the sixties as sort of the end all, end all and be all of, of a certain moment in history and culture, and then there's a tendency of people to dismiss it because they they didn't live through it and they want to they don't want to be held to measure by it, and I, I and I understand. That and also, uh, it, the truth is, it wasn't the end all and be all. There's been a lot of great music uh, it, and and developments in the, the time since, and yet there's also a sense that something something happened then that uh, that was both wonderful and frightening, and, and has not been duplicated. When I when I wrote that, it was before it was uh, you know it was late last year. It was before it was clear that. Uh, Barack Obama was going to uh, likely win win this uh, election, and I and had we been more into that moment, I I think I would have written some things differently. I'm not saying that he's going to be a repeat of, of the 1960s. I don't think so. I think he's part more that what can be made a, a new uh, a quality I, I, I was writing about. But I certainly think he represents something more hopeful than what we've been through. Yeah, and he's he's not. I, I guess I would describe the Bush administration as being anti 1960s, and I think I think that Obama is <laughs> at least a neutral on that ground. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he's a, a neutral. He, I mean, he certainly didn't grow, grow up in that time, and he's been pretty. You know, he's, he's been pretty careful about how he's distanced himself from it. But you're also right about the Bush administration. I mean, early on. Uh, uh, President Bush and, and Vice President Cheney both said that, that you know part of their purpose was to roll back, uh, you know what they saw as as a terrible uh, 
de- developments and, and permissiveness of, of the 1960s. And there have been many other conservatives over the years who have felt that that uh, so, so much of their agenda stemmed from a reaction against those times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, go, I'm just going, going back to the, uh, Ronald Reagan, even. I, we have been playing out this culture war since, uh, since the late 70s, and, and here we are uh, almost 30 years later since Reagan started, that we still, we still seem to be struggling with the idea that the 60s and that culture somehow hijacked what was best about America and we need to somehow return to this uh, this period prior to the '60s. So it's it still this resonates forward even to this day. Oh, it does. You know, it, it, it will it will remain an argument for uh, for our lifetimes, cer- certainly for, for for my for my lifetime. And I would push it back even ten more years uh, before that because one of the reasons Reagan came to power in California. I mean, the primary reason was, was he campaigned uh, against. Uh, the youth movement and, and the youth-oriented political movements uh, of that time. I mean, he he came to power campaigning against student activism and and the hate Ashbury, and he was pretty fierce uh, right. about it. What didn't he campaign? Wasn't that about San Francisco State? That wasn't that sort of the defining moment in his run for governor, where he 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 said something. I'm not going to stand for this, or so he had some kind of sort of you know ultimatum statement he made, and that really defined his candidacy back when he ran uh, in this. Was it seventy-two? I think. Uh, no, I, uh, it, it was uh, in. Um, he, he ran uh, uh, in sixty-eight, yeah, I, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, he, it, it was. It, he took a pretty firm stance at one point. He uh, at one point during a period of of, uh, of student uh, demonstrations, he said, "If we're going to have a bloodbath, let's let's have it now." And at another point, he. Uh, uh, Governor Reagan and his attorney general, uh, Ed Meese, sent in, uh, you know, armed troopers, uh, armed police forces into uh, People's Park in Berkeley, and you know, and they not only roughed people up, but they shot and killed one person without any, uh, you know, without any real cause. And and just one other thing, uh, just to, to prove your point, uh, and that is, uh, uh, Richard Nixon, after Kent State, called uh, the demonstrators bums, and in some way inferred that they had it coming. Yes, he, he did, and, and and in fact, that's also you know what uh, what uh, Ed Meese said after the, the shooting in in uh, People's Park. He said, you know, this person was there, so so essentially he, he had it coming. That you know that was the, the idea that, that if you spoke up in, in this way, you were, uh, or or if you lived a lifestyle in in these ways, you were essentially committing something not only outside of the norm but almost something treasonous. Uh, We're speaking with Michael Gilmore. The book is Stories Done, Writings on the 1960s and Its Discontents. The first chapter of your book is uh, dedicated to uh, holy man Allen Ginsberg. Uh, Was there a reason you you put him up front, and and what was his role in in all of this? Well, I I put him up front because because, um, there's there's not really a chronological flow to to the book, but there's a, a rough thematic flow that's kind of chronological from early beginnings to kind of uh, the point where things um, somewhat dissipated. And, and he, you know, he took that position simply because what he did preceded, uh, you know, what happened uh, in, the, in the 1960s. I mean, he made his mark in the 1950s. He put, he put the beat movement on, on the map, and he wrote uh, a, a kind of poetry uh, and, made a, and it took a kind of stance that um, 
it's not as if it had never been done in, in American uh, poetry. It was maybe more common to, to European poetry. But in that moment, after after uh, World War II, in, the, in that time when there was all this nuclear power and nuclear fear building in, in America, and there was the regimented ideas about society, he spoke out and said, there are other ways that, that people are going to live their lives, and, and those ways can be just as meaningful, perhaps more meaningful. And he took the side of... Uh, of the people who, uh, you know, who were uh, essentially social outlaws, and by which I don't mean criminals, I mean people who who lived different lifestyles and had different political views. Mm-hmm. Now, coming up next, I, I'm not going to read them off chapter by chapter, but I, I have to touch on Timothy Leary, too. It's it's almost like, I wouldn't call them polar opposites, but, but Ginsburg came from a holy man's stance, and, and although... Leary did. He seems more like a salesman compared to to Ginsburg, <laughs> a salesman for the for a lifestyle. Have, what's your take on on uh, Leary's Leary's contribution to to the nineteen sixties? Well, that, that, I mean that's a really good observation you just made, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I've heard anybody else uh, <laughs> make it. I mean, you know, Leary was was a, and began as a serious man. He he was a serious and well revered psychologist and, and and a professor at Harvard, and he did some important work uh prior to his uh his interest in in psychedelics uh primarily LSD and, and mescaline and uh, and I and I believe that his that early expo- those early explorations were were pretty uh sincere uh he was genuinely see, trying to look at how these drugs transformed uh people's minds and and possibly their lives he got caught up uh Become, he, he proselytized for, 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 you know, for those possible benefits, and he became I- identified with them. And, and I think, I, I think, in some, to some degree, Larry may at moments have seen himself a, a, as a holy man too. Uh, you know, he, I mean, Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in, in America, and, uh, and I, you know. I mean, I wouldn't want to make too light of his influence, but uh, but you know there was this kind of um, uh, there was also this kind of buffoonery about him, that, and I I don't mean that in an overly critical way, but you know this kind of foolishness about him that could be a bit dangerous, but it was also but it, you know he was a man who had a great deal of charm. Mm-hmm. Well, and and in your book, I mean, you were at his deathbed. Um, when, when that was happening, I, I was I was online at the time. I didn't get to be there in person. But but what was that like to 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 be um, at the deathbed of a man who who spent a lot of time in I don't want to say a fantasy world, but getting out of outside of reality. Well, being at, you know being at the deathbed of anybody is is you know pretty sobering. Yeah. Uh, uh, experience, and I had actually never been at, 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 somebody, at, at somebody's deathbed. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 you know, being that close to death, uh, you know, at least for me, is, is is always something that kind of freezes you in, in your tracks. And I was careful actually not to be there w- when he died. Uh, but um, at the end of his life, Larry was. In, I didn't know him, at, you know, in his younger days or at the height of his infamy. Uh, I only knew him in the last month of his existence, and he was sort of in and out as uh, as an, a, a personality at, at that point. You know, he was in a lot of pain. Uh, he 
memory. He sometimes didn't even recognize his, his own work. And in other moments, he was extremely lucid and good-humored. I think Larry, uh, you know, said a moment ago he had a kind of buffoonery about him, but he had a, I wouldn't know if I would call it a cruel quality, but he took a, a toll on the people around him. You know, his, his first wife committed suicide uh, later, uh, a daughter committed suicide. I don't think he was an easy man uh, to live with. By the end of his life, he was a, a gentle and funny man riding around in, in a wheelchair that a lot of young people took care of and, and loved. So there was a kind of transformation, and a lot of that was brought on by the severity of the illness. Well, how much do you think he, he spread the gospel of, of psychedelics? Do you think that he was mainly responsible, or was that more to do with Owsley and and San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury? Well, it, you know, it, it, it was both. I mean, certainly people, more people knew who Timothy Leary was than, than knew who Stanley Owsley was, who mm -hmm. made a lot of the, the potent LSD that came out of the Bay Area. Uh, but, um, you know, so it, both, both those influences mattered a lot. And also, uh, you know, as the music became popularized, in, I mean, as music popularized the, the idea of, of psychedelic experience in you know, in the, the songs and albums of, of the Beatles or, or, or even the, the Doors. But what's interesting, one, one thing to keep in mind about Larry, as opposed to, say, Stanley Owsley, and Owsley was part of that Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey and Mary Prankster circles, that they had, the one thing that speaks in Larry's behalf is that they had very differing views about how these drugs should be used. Larry really thought the drugs should be used uh, under guidance and in careful uh, and supervised situations, whereas there was this kind of Wild West mentality to, to the San Francisco movement, mm -hmm. that, uh, that you just, you took the drugs and you saw what happened, and if people's lives, if people's minds kind of came apart, and that was just part of, of the risk and, and the experience. I'm, I'm putting that a little uh, more dramatically than, than they would have put it, but that, but those two points of view were very different, and, and they had real conflicts uh, about those points of view. Yeah, there were, there were the the uh, merry pranksters, and then there were the, the, uh, I guess self explorers. Wh which camp were you in, by the way? I, I would have been closer to the Lurie camp. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did take I did take psychedelics. I was always careful to take them with friends, uh, and and not not to go into public because I had respect for for the truth that these were drugs that you kind of rolled the dice with. These were these were drugs that that could have an unpredictable uh, result and effect, and, and you were taking, you were, dis you were discovering things in, in your mind that, uh, that you couldn't quite anticipate. So I, I think that Larry counseled a kind of responsibility that, uh, that was for the better. I, I, think, I think that probably the most radical thing that happened in American culture in the 1960s, and that made that whole movement of youth uh, culture so frightening, was the use of psychedelics. I think it, it frightened, uh, I, and not for unfair reason, I think it frightened an awful lot of Americans. It, it was bringing a, a, uh, a, a kind of wild stranger in, in, into their, their midst. And, uh, and that would have happened even with, with Larry's counseling. But uh, but certainly with, with uh, the, the kind of explosion that happened in Ashbury, it, it became even more frightening to people. Well, is it, was that uh, much has been made about drug use in, in uh, the '60s, and that's sort of the, the 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 thread that sort of leads even to today, going into the drug war and uh, the, the the 
the horror that that's been visited upon the United States in the, under the guise of the the drug war. But it, 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 the drug use that you're describing was was about possibilities, and I mean that's certainly much of what I took from the 60s yeah. was about possibilities. It was opening up, and to uh, other Americans, it was a, an, a frontal assault on an American work ethic, an American point of view, a sort of this puritanical point of view, uh, work ethic point of view, and uh, and here you had these two different camps of people who who were using these drugs, these psychedelic drugs, uh, both of which were an affront to what most Americans were thinking at the time. But uh, as you're describing Leary's uh, and Ram Dass, would you put Ram Dass in that camp? Um, yeah, Leary and Ram Dass basically shared the same philosophy. Yeah, and that, and but this was... But this was the this was what it was about was it was as much about the possibilities in front of us and in changing the way that we interact and the way society uh, interacted, really an affront to consumerism as well. That's to me oh, one, yeah. of the, one of the one of the salient things about the '60s was it wasn't just about the music and the drugs and all that, but it was in fact an attack on consumer-based uh, economy and a consumer-based uh, worldview. Oh yeah, I mean it, it seriously challenged uh, you know a, a kind of Western I- ideology uh, uh, of the times that had been pretty comfortable and, and successful, and all of a sudden the the, the children of, of that ideology were um, they weren't well they were certainly challenging. I wouldn't exactly say they were discarding it because they basically later accepted it, but but they you know they gave it a, a, a serious test. Now, we're speaking with Michael Gilmore. The book is Stories Done, writing on the 1960s and its discontents. And you have uh, covered a lot of ground here. Jerry Garcia, Ken Kesey, Haight Ashbury, George Harrison, uh, and the Beatles in general, John Lennon, Johnny Cash, Bob Marley, Phil Oaks, Hunter Thompson, Jim Morrison, the Allman Brothers. I'm going to keep going. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to th- roll. I'm Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. Do you, do you think there's one person that really stands out, maybe someone who hasn't been recognized as much as he should, or, or just people that have been recognized? Is there is there one force during that period of time that you would say really carried the flag? Well, if, if there was one force that, that, that carried a flag, it, it would have been the Beatles, because, you know, they signal the kind of, of massive youth consensus when, when they gained popularity, and they were willing to grow and change with the times, and the times grew and changed with them. There was this just you know kind of, of wonderful synthesis that that happened, and and I and I think in a surprising and yet kind of neat way, uh, by by which I mean you know, it falls into even parameters. They they um, you know their rise and fall really paralleled the. Uh, the the rise of possibility that you were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then the sense of disillusionment that, that followed. So, if if there was one central metaphor, but not just a metaphor, they were force. They, they, I think they were a genuine force of history as much as anything we've seen in the last fifty or sixty years. And and it was good that they broke up. <laughs> they, go ahead. I'm sorry. They they could not have gone on much longer. For for all kinds of, uh, of reasons, you know, they did come to kind of a natural but very unpleasant end. Yeah. One thing about the Beatles, uh, in, in the beginning and at the end, their timing was impeccable. Yeah. They came right, they came in at the right exact right time, and they left just about the time that things were going to turn really ugly uh, as far as they were concerned. And 
they they did they did it if you want to put it they did it right if in that regard I think more than anybody else in the 1960s, with the important exception of people like Martin Luther King. But aside from that, I think that, you know the Beatles were people who met their moment. They lived up to it, and they recognized that they recognized that they were in a genuine era, and they recognized when when they could not sustain that anymore. Yeah, um, I want to ask you. Uh, this is you obviously talk about Hunter Thompson in the book. Um, I, I'm one of those people that would, would read Rolling Stone. You know, religiously, and I, I really think that uh, Hunter Thompson embodies all of the best and all of the excesses of the '60s. His writing was remarkable. He was a remarkable talent, but he did dissipate himself in the process. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, when I was reading uh, Thompson at the same time that you were, I, I sometimes wondered how much of the 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 drug writing and drug reference was kind of uh, not parody, but but something that you know that that he may be inflated for, for effect on, on the page. And then later I learned uh, that perhaps <laughs> it, it wasn't <laughs> an inflation at all. And I, and I think that, I think that took a, a cost on him. I mean, you know, he came to his prominence and fame after the 1960s, not that far after, but, uh, but a bit after, um, uh, and with, you know, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, he wrote, you know, one of the perfect, uh, uh, I guess at this point it would be called a book, but certainly one of the perfect accounts of how things kind of spun out out of control. I think I've always thought his best book was a collection of his writings about the 1972 uh, presidential campaign between uh, Richard Nixon and George McGovern. I agree. Yep. So Thompson apparently just burned out in some ways. Uh, he seemed kind of a self-centered man. Uh, through his career, especially at the end there. I thought he was devoting a lot of time to his own self-interest. But is, is the drug use and the excesses that these people uh, went through, is, is that a necessity to their creative process? Do you think that, that any of this would have existed w without them uh, having so much uh, fun, <laughs> having so much uh, you know, focus on their own self and on their own uh, uh, pleasures? Well, you know, it, it's been an argument for, for you know decades about whether or not something like drug use or depression or or even uh, you know madness is, is a part of art and creativity, and, and it certainly can be. Uh, I, I don't think it's at all necessary to, to that process. But I think for a lot of these people, uh, I think uh, I think that that term you use, necessity, really does a, a apply because. It was it was part and parcel of those times. It was hard to get through those times without having to encounter uh, some kind of stance on on uh, on well the central arguments. And among the central arguments uh, was the, the use of mind affecting drugs. I think one of the few people in the book who really didn't seem to be dented by that, you know, was Leonard Cohen. But I think almost everybody else in there was in one way or another, uh, you know, deeply affected by their uh, experience with drugs and or alcohol. Why do you think that's true with Cohen? Does that have something to do with his uh, Zen beliefs? Maybe. Uh, he, kind of, he kind of grew up in a different uh I wouldn't say tradition, but a different place. He grew up in Canada. He grew up in a literary tradition. He he intended to be a novelist and poet. In fact, he was. He was a terrific novelist. Uh, but 
I think that he had a sense of self-reliance, uh, uh, maybe a, a longer view of, of things. I don't really know if Leonard Cohen uh, used drugs much at, at all. Uh, I don't recall talking to him uh, about it. It didn't seem, if he did, it would never seemed an important reference point to him. I think long before a lot of this other stuff happened, Leonard Cohen had written uh, an absolutely mind-blowing uh, novel called Beautiful Losers that was outrageous and and far beyond uh, the far beyond what most people can create in a psychedelic state. And he did that in the 1950s. Uh, I, I think that whatever a lot of other people got from from drugs, Leonard Cohen got from from some inner creativity and, and capacity and, and experience that didn't need anything like that. Uh, at the at the risk of of sounding nostalgic for the 60s, because I'm not. But do you think that yes, an era, well, in, in some ways, when we discussed before, the, um, that there are certain things about the 60s that I wished we had uh, built on and, and carried forward. But there, um, do you think there's any sort of a uh, confluence of uh, events and, and trends and the rest of it that would in some way replicate what happened in the 60s in terms of challenging authority, which we haven't really done uh, very effectively in the last 30 years? Do you think that could is is that a possibility in your mind? I don't know. You know, you know, as you said, moments can't really be duplicated because what creates them is, is so is so complex. There's so many elements to creating moments like what happened in in, in the 1960s, and we're quite a bit down the road. I, I think that, uh, and also there is, you know, one of the, the one of the signal things about the 1960s was that it was a time when deference was no longer paid to uh, authority, at least not in any blind, uh, simple way. And for the last several years, and even now, there is still a a respect for authority. I think when somebody like Barack Obama comes into office, there's an affection for for that kind of uh, authority because he represents possibilities. So, uh, but events, you know, there's no telling what events will be like in the next several years. There was no no easy telling what they were going to be like in the last eight years. I think that what I, I think the one thing that, that Obama has in common with the 1960s was that early on in the 1960s, certainly in America, you had the election of, of John Kennedy, and Kennedy made you know there's a myth about Kennedy. He, he was, certainly wasn't a, a great president, but he represented a usefulness, a range of possibility, and hope, and that representation mattered a, a, a lot. That helped bring about. A uh, kind of enthusiasm and uh, and energy that you know that helped transform those times. I wouldn't be surprised if something along those lines could happen with Obama. Well, I just want to say, uh, Michael Gilmore, I want to um, I want to. You're the reason I missed the uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Uh, I, I, uh, your writing is I've I've been reading you for quite some time, um, and uh, I want to thank you. In I want to thank you for all the writings uh, that you've you've. Uh, you've done over these years on music and the rest of it. Yes, sir. Uh, the book well, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, that's very kind, and I've, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Well, that's, the book is Stories Done, Writing on the 1960s and Its Discontents. Michael Gilmore, thanks for being on Weekly Signals. Okay, thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. 
And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. 